you'll be happy. We think we want to be happy, so we'll do that. And we find ourselves um, then aided and abetted by a sinful society because the world around us says, yeah, you're right. That was true, that that would make you happy, that that would fulfill your longings. And yes, you're seeing that it is fulfilling your longings, albeit with some complications. Um, so the world says, you're all good. And yet in the middle of it all, we step back and we say, but isn't there something wrong with us still? Isn't there something wrong in our world still? So we're trying to round out our understanding of all of this. Um, I suggested at the end last week that our proper ambivalence to the world would be characterized by people who are in the world, against the world, for the world, which sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. We are in the world, deliberately and delightfully in the world. We are against the world as a system. We are against the world uh, as it is programmed with the lies of Satan. But we are for the world, even in that we are being against the world. That againstness is being for. Um, we ought to be the person who says, really? Or should we do this? Or do you believe that? We should be having those kinds of interactions in our world for our world. So here's our verse from today. It's from 1 John chapter 2. And John, who was Jesus' dear disciple, best friend, um, and pretty much becomes the spokesperson for Jesus' teachings in his writings in, in the New Testament. John said, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Richard Foster is a Quaker theologian pastor who has written beautiful books, The Celebration of Discipline, uh, Freedom of Simplicity, and he has a book as well that is simply called Money, Sex, and Power. So when he tries to distill um, this triad of problems that we have with our being in the world, he says it's money, sex, and power. And his thesis is that all of us are prone to one or more of those three, that they could be our downfall. And if we have a look at ourselves, if we have a look at our world, if we, if we have a look at our churches, um, we would see that money, sex, and power are often the downfall, the cause of someone's terrible demise. Um, all of us would be wise to try to ask, well, if something were to happen to me that would cause me to trip in my Christian life, would it likely be because of money? Would it likely be because of sex? Would it likely be because of power? And when we know which one might be our vulnerable spot, then we can get ourselves prepared um, when the temptation comes, because it will. And I, I doubt that there's anyone sitting here who says, no, not, not one of those three even tempts me. I'm, I don't care about money. Uh, I don't care about sex. I don't want power, that's for sure. I think all of us would say, boy, yeah, there's one of those that could get me if I was to be gone. Um, money, sex, and power, as John describes them, 
um, also rhymes with the beginning of our demise. So here's what happened when the serpent approached Eve in the garden. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh or sex, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, money, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the boastful pride of life or power, she took from its fruit and gate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So way back at the beginning, we find that those three things were the ways that the serpent was seeking to entice uh, Eve. And remember how he began. Uh, he didn't begin by you know, springing up and saying, hey, look at me, woman. I am the beautiful being who is going to give you a good life. He just asks her questions like, did God really say? And there's his MO beginning to show up at the very beginning of our story that Satan does not come out with a blatant lie. He comes out with a question that says, did God really say that? And he sowed a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And she began to think, well, did he say that? Or what did he mean by that? Uh, and then she was enticed uh, in these three ways by um, the fruit that was before her. Now, when we do a fast forward and get to the life of Jesus, and we've talked about how uh, he was tempted by the devil. Uh, he didn't dispute the devil's claim that he could give him all the kingdoms of the world. But he did say this. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So that's something we need to sort of keep in the back of our mind through all of this discussion, that the prince of this world, the king of this world, has already been judged. And he will be cast out. So we are living as people who understand the impact of the father of lies and the way that that has sown into our whole system of being. And that Jesus has come and he has encountered the father of lies and he has dismissed him by proclaiming judgment upon him and then we are his followers through a period of time that we would maybe call the in-between time. We are people who know what has happened and what will happen, but we have the, the kind of opportunity to be in the in-between time as people who understand that the kingdom of God is coming and the kingdom of God is already here. So again, you know, we find ourselves in that, in that sort of headspace where we go, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. The kingdom of God is arriving and we see evidence of the arriving of the kingdom of God every spot here or there and around the world. But the kingdom of God has not fully arrived and Satan has not fully been judged and sentenced um, because there is yet a judgment to come on, on him. Uh, and the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness. We get to be in the in-between time, which is a, a very exciting time. And so that affects our theology. We talked last week about the, the idea many of us grew up with, which was that we're, well, we're here because we have to be, but we want to get out of here. So heaven is what's on our mind. We want to get away from here, get to heaven, drag as many people with us as we can, and then we'll have done with this place. And that's a deficient theology. It, it's one I grew up with, but it's deficient. And it is not very interesting. The idea that we're just putting in time here and trying to get other people to leave with us just doesn't seem right. 
the idea that the kingdom of God is coming and it's already here in its early forms, that God is not going to throw away the world that he loved and created. He's going to restore it so that Alberta's mountains are going to be even more splendid than Sylvie saw them this year. And she shouldn't have said, Darren is our new president of the Christian Missionary Alliance. He's moving here from Edmonton. And she just said he shouldn't move because Alberta's beautiful. He should move, right? He's going to live right here in Milton. So welcome to Milton. Right. Jesus said, or John said, probably repeating what he heard from, from Jesus, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So he's, he's been saying, don't love the world or anything in it because these lusts, these three things, are passing away. Um, and the world is passing away, these, these lusts, with the world. But as it is passing away, um, our theology would say it's not passing away in, in terms of annihilation. It's not passing away in the sense of being exterminated. It's being renewed. Uh, when we talk about people passing away, we don't mean they've stopped existing. We mean that they have been renewed into a resurrection, into the presence of Jesus. And so when we pass about, think about the world passing away, again, it's the world being renewed. It's like the, the world is being um, revitalized, reorganized, resorted into a wonderful new future. The desires that we have will continue to be desires, but they will be different desires. The longings that we have that we think will be satisfied, given that we are living in this framework of the liar devil and the flesh's desires and the world aiding and abetting, the fact that we are beings with desires is a God-given reality. We have longings in us. Uh, German theologians call it Sehnsucht. I love that word. It's a good one to say, right? Sehnsucht. You can say it if you want. C.S. Lewis, almost all of his writings is about this kind of backwards nostalgia where he identifies the fact that we're all longing for something and we really don't know what it is. In our fallenness, we think we're longing for money, sex, or power. And we chase after these things and when we get whatever level of success we achieve in, in reaching these goals, we find that they're very disappointing. It's like when you have come from somewhere and you go back and you say you're going back home. When you go back home, what is it? Not home anymore. Because what you remember is a memory. What you remember is a feeling. What you remember is a nostalgia. And that's a God-given, created longingness. We are people who long for something. The greatest discovery is to understand that we long for God, that the happiest settled place for a follower of Jesus is in a relationship with God. Um, so if you've grown up with a religion that has bored you, that has abused you, that has alienated you, that religion was false because the most delightful place to be is in a relationship with God, and the vehicle is supposed to be religion, 
to get you there. So John says, don't love the world, don't love the lusts of the world, because it's all passing away. There's something new that's coming, there's something more that's coming. So we are the people who live in the in-between, in many, many ways. Again, we are the people of this proper ambivalence um, that we kind of sometimes would like the voices in our heads to stop talking, right? Because we're always thinking and wondering and questioning, and we should be that sort of a people. How do we become people who understand what it means to live in the gap? When we think about living in the gap and think about what the new creation is going to be like, um, it might be an interesting sort of mental exercise for you to go through and say, well, if the longing that I have is not satisfied by money, sex, and power, um, in the new kingdom, what would the equivalent be of money if it were thoroughly redeemed? Um, will we make money in heaven, the new kingdom? Um, will we do things? Uh, will we, you know, have projects, that sort of thing? Uh, what will be our enjoyment that is the proper replacement of the longing for sex? It'll be the, the perfect intimacy with other human beings with whom we are fully and thoroughly um, open and uh, receiving in that relationship. Without it becoming a commodity, without our using one another, we will somehow learn the beauty of being with one another in a way that fully um, dispenses love and grace and every other good thing to that other person in the transaction. What about power? Well, we hear Jesus say things like, you're going to judge the world uh, to his disciples. And we think, well, when we get into the new kingdom, does God have work for us to do that basically says you're responsible for doing this, you have the authority to do this? What will it be like? Um, the old ideas of clouds and harps and singing just doesn't cut it, right? The new, the new kingdom is going to be one that is vibrant and is going to be the epitome of the fulfilling of our deepest, deepest longings for ourselves, for one another, for ourselves as a community and a world. As we are those in-between people, um, we ask, well, how do we make sure that these three things are held at bay, money, sex, and power? Well, if you were in one tradition, um, you might go to a monastery and you might learn three things that you need to be a person of poverty, a person of chastity, and a person of obedience, right? Um, you, you have no money because you've taken a vow of poverty. Um, it's interesting, when we fill out our income tax returns, uh, we claim some things because we're clergy, and they always ask if we have taken a vow of poverty. And we always say yes, because we went into the ministry. No, we don't say yes, because we're going to get in trouble. Bob, we don't say yes, honestly. Right? Uh, if, if you go into a monastery, you take a vow of chastity. Um, and if you go in a monastery, you will take a vow of obedience, that you will do exactly what you're told. Those are the ways that, in the history of the church, um, people have, have countered money, sex, and power 
in a way that they feel that they can hold them at bay entirely. For several years, I was part of a, a movement called the Order of Mission. It was actually an, an, an order in the Anglican Church. And one of the great things about that was that most of the things we did were in Polly's Island, South Carolina, so it was a good place to be. I liked what they were all about. But they have a rule of life um, that parallels those that are taken in monastic orders. And so rather than um, poverty, they take a vow together of simplicity. And they answer the question, how little should we be living on? How much should we have? What's a proper level of responsible, simple living that will not become, <clears throat> that our lives will not become sort of onerous because we're, we're always striving to get some more money to make more, so that we have the resources for what we want to do. So they will um, counsel one another about simplicity. Do you really need to buy a second car? Do you really need any car? Do you need three cars? Do you need a big house? Do you need two houses? Um, and just asking the question and saying, because there is freedom, as Foster said, in simplicity. Secondly, um, to contest the, the draw to sex, not chastity, but purity, where they will, they will um, extol the values of living pure lives. Uh, Andrew has talked about a young couple that he married lately who are a great example of people that seem in their youth to have reached a level of purity in the way that they have lived their lives. Um, it is very unusual these days, and yet n not pursuing purity has become for a generation and more um, endemic in its complexity about what happens when you involve yourself at a time you shouldn't, in a situation in which you shouldn't, and you try to unravel all the stuff that you have mixed up there. So purity is the second um, sort of rule of life for them. And then finally, instead of obedience, they commit themselves to accountability, which is simply to ask, uh, who's asking you the question, what are you doing? What, what's on your calendar? Uh, what are you chasing after? What are you longing for? All those kinds of things. And as we live together as community, um, we will need to be ready to sort of open our lives. And I think that's the journey we're beginning to go on. We're wanting to lay a groundwork, sort of a framework of understanding, but it's so that we can get to the point where we are the kind of community where we can talk together, be together, live together in ways that we are absolutely family to one another. There are topics that we need to bring up that we couldn't bring up right now. You know that, right? That we are so disparate in our, in our opinions and beliefs and values that we're not safe enough yet to have some conversations. But those conversations need to be had. We have claimed that there's no conversation that's ever over in here. Um, but we need to get to the place where we dare to talk about things that good Christian people don't talk about, or good conservative people don't talk about, or good whatever kinds of people don't talk about. The church needs to be the kind of community that is absolutely transparent, where we are transparent with one another, where I can say something and you will not gasp 
at what I've said. I sometimes thought we ought to have, you know, a clemency Sunday when we can all say something and then everybody will forget. So we will just all get in here and, we'll, and each one will say, this is what I struggle with, this is what I've done, and we may have a moment of, oh, my goodness, I wouldn't have thought you would have done that. But when you walk out the door, you can't remember what anybody said. Wouldn't that kind of a day be great? It'd be great fun. It'd be a dangerous day, wouldn't it? But, but it's a proper kind of notion that it's okay to be who you are. God's not going to leave you where you are, but you need to know that he loves you thoroughly where you are, and he has only the best in mind. He has only good for you. So if we believe that together, and we need to have times when we say, but I'm stuck here, and I'm really embarrassed to say that, but I am stuck here. I'm afraid to say that because I'm not sure how you'll view me from now on when I tell you that I'm stuck here. But we need to say to one another, we're all stuck somewhere. We're all stuck somewhere. Um, and we need to know that it's okay to be stuck, uh, but not to stay stuck because of the grace of God and the grace of God's community. So as we think about all of this, you know, we, we sort of round the subject and say, it, it, do, do we now have a good grasp on our sense of reality? Do we have a good grasp on the, the real being Satan? And uh, do we have a good grasp on the fact that he lies and that he constructs a world of lies? And that we have struggles. We are all still on the way. And we are tempted in the flesh, and we fight in the flesh, and we fight with the flesh. And the world around us aids and abets us at every turn. That every time we turn on the television, every time we have a conversation, every time we watch something, the system that the world is will not be helpful to us. But while we say that, we are still people who love this world, love being in this world, do not want to exit this world, do not want to go to heaven and draw people with us and leave everything else to go to hell. We want to be people who love the world and all of its people. And we need to be people who are not afraid um, that as we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, as followers of the way, that we also have the life and the lifestyles that back that up. So that when someone hears you say that, they don't say, oh, okay, yeah, I thought there was something weird about you. But they say, wow, because I thought those kinds of people were like this, but that's not what you're like. We're real people. Um, we have real problems, we have real successes and real failures, just like everybody else. And the wonderful thing that we have to say is that, you know, have you come to know who Jesus really was and is? Because that's what makes all the difference, as far as I'm concerned. And that is bringing me through the muddle of this world, the confusion in my head and in my life. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Why don't we pray? Father, we pray that you will um, correct our minds so that the truth is given a, a dominant place. 
We pray that we will s sort of suspect every way that we have believed a lie. And I pray that you will help us then discern how that lie has become believable to us in the fleshly struggle that we have. And how that lie is um, pervasive in our society so that it's not called out. Uh, help us, Father, to be wise. And empower us by your spirit uh, to become the kind of community that we ought to be. The kind of community that looks a lot like the coming kingdom in which we will all delight and find our full longings.